Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The border remains the most important subject in America, and that's why we're doing Border Week. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, great to be with you. Border Week presented by Americans for Prosperity, the sponsor my videos. And I wanted to put this together with them because it's a conversation of the economic impact of the border, what we're doing and what we're not doing, the jobs that are going unfulfilled. What are we doing right and what are we doing wrong policy-wise? Isabel Soto joins me. She is the policy director of the Libre Initiative. And I I spoke with her, you catch all the videos over at TonyKatz.com. I spoke with her about policy that we have in place at the border. Is there anything that the United States is doing right. There's nothing like, if I can say today, here's one thing that they are doing on the border that's working. Other than the hard work that the that the Border Patrol agents have to do every single day, there's not one specific policy that I see that has been absolutely effective uh, by far and away. Is there anything that you would say is partially effective? Mm. Yeah, I think trying to reduce um, individuals coming to the border uh, and kind of waiting there to get processed. There are these other centers that have uh, started to get open in other countries. That's a promising idea. So that, again, it, it remains to be seen that that's actually going to work, but it's something more or less bipartisan. So that is a, that's an exciting thing that's in the works. So when we talk about that, you mean things that, as we say in the vernacular, remain in Mexico, like those kinds of, of policies? It's a little less that it's a little bit more t- on the technical side. So when people come, they can use like the CBP-1 app is a good example of basically individuals that are planning to come and seek asylum. So these are for, for asylum seekers specifically, and they can apply for asylum in another country and stay there while their application is being processed instead of what the status quo is, is people come, they cross and immediately claim asylum. And then so they that, wait in the U.S. That app was put forth by the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't think it was the Wall Street Journal. I forget where. Uh, people, by and large, didn't use it because it seems that what they would rather do is come to the border and take their chances or come to the border and see if they'll get caught at all. Right. And not to mention, I mean, there were immense technical problems with the app, right? And you're assuming that it's, it's easy to be able to use it. It's it, you're always going to have reception, and and it's going to be a seamless process, and that's just not the case. So it it is responding to a number of different incentives, and what you've mentioned of, of people taking their chances. The reality is the the individuals that try to cross the border, the only information that they reliably get is from bad actors. So the cartels who are profiting off of this whole broken system, those are the only people that are constantly in touch within what some ways they view as, as their customer base. And so it's really hard to be pushing against the messaging um, when the messaging is saying, go, 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 and cross the border. So their customers, which is a whole, there's a coyote conversation. Not to put it lightly. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, I I know, and it is, it is. I think neither one of us is trying to downplay the horror that a lot of people go through and trying to get uh, to the country, which is a different conversation than whether or not they should be allowed in the country, which is a part of the policy problem that we see. Is, is Is it the United States giving a mixed message of, yeah, we're open, no, we're not? Or is it much more of the cartel-related side, as you've been able to study it, about uh, it it doesn't matter what they say, we'll get you through, just give us the money, give us the money, give us the money. 
Yeah, well, it's both. I mean, if you have weak messaging from the United States government, that is perfect for the cartels to be able to exploit. Um, when you have an administration that is wishy-washy on the border, and for a very long time, which I think has, has changed slightly, but for a very long time, the Biden administration was saying, the border is secure and everything's fine. We don't need to worry about it. The cartels can say, yeah, see, everything's fine. They're not worried about it. They're not sending anyone to the border. They aren't increasing um, border patrol agents. Feel free to come by. There was a mixed messaging that occurred when Title 42 ended uh, from the cartel side that the border would be completely open for 48 hours. Again, just completely false. And the Biden administration was not doing a good job getting out in front of this and at least trying to dissuade people from coming. Talk to Isabel Soto. She is the policy director for the Libre uh, Initiative. They focus on economic uh, liberty, immigration issues. Uh, the, the Biden administration not getting ahead of things. I, I could and you could probably go on for a long time about mm-hmm. Biden administration issues and where the political differences lie. But this is both parties uh, failing uh, on the border. Uh, and the, the question is, what policies are they putting forth that don't seem to get either side to come together? Or is it both sides that don't actually put forward policies that provide any value at all? Yeah, so I think part of it is that there's this there's this horrible and twisted incentive to put up these massive pieces of legislation. And this is both parties put up massive pieces of legislation, be it like border security on the right, like huge and sticking stuff in there that we know does not have bipartisan consensus and will never get passed. But I could go home to my constituents and say, look, I'm trying to do things about the border. And then on the other side, we can have a massive bill uh, from the left, from the Democrats, a bunch of asylum things in there, a bunch of uh, legal immigration, and then pushing, pushing more to the point that it's not bipartisan and no one on the right will vote for it. But you can go back home to your district and say, I'm trying to get stuff done. But, you know, these Republicans or these Democrats won't let us get things done. So there's this weird situation where there's not a huge incentive to actually fix this problem. It's easier to talk about it and to complain about it. When you discuss with people uh, the problem. How do you describe it? In a word, complicated. Um, I think it is a, a, it's important to make the distinction. The first thing I typically do is say, figure out if we're talking about uh, the border or we're talking about legal channels. So if we're talking about the border, I think the big distinction to make there is that, yes, it's a huge like uh, national security issue. It's also a humanitarian issue. So there are two avenues in which you discuss that. So it's it's extremely complicated. And what I don't want to do is pretend like only addressing the border is the way to move forward. We can't ignore the legal pathways and vice versa. Some individuals only want to focus on those legal pathways and think everything else will be fixed if you fix that process. But the reality is you have to do both at the same time. That is the best way to tackle this. When I talk to people about this and talk about the humanitarian issues, Uh, And I've said this before on radio. What about the humanitarian issues that the border causes right here in the United States? What about what it causes for those who live uh, on the border, live uh, on those ranches? What does it cause for towns like El Paso? What does it cause for towns uh, like like McAllen that are dealing with this massive influx and simply can't handle it, never mind other things that that come with that, which is a crime problem? which is a a dollars and cents problem. And there's also uh, a, a, you know, uh, 
I, I, I don't want to say a disease problem, but an illness issue. There are things that other nations have that we haven't dealt with in a great long time because we have a better sanitation conversation. We have a better healthcare uh, uh, conversation. How do you address the people who discuss, well, what about the humanitarian situation for the United States? Yeah, and it's it's a humanitarian, it's well put. It's humanitarian, not just for the individuals coming in, but the people that already live there, right? We're talking about, we're talking about the, the border that's shared with Texas. What a lot of people, a lot of people don't know is that that border, the majority of it is actually privately owned land. These are like individuals, actual homes and businesses that migrants are crossing into. And then on top of that, we have the scarcity issue. Um, some of these small towns, they don't have the resources or they have just enough resources to be able to address the day to day. They're used to addressing, you know, the number of people that typically come to their hospital every year, the number of staff that they'll need. When you have a thousand people cross, uh, all of a sudden it becomes a group of people that likely don't need medical care pretty urgently. We don't want to necessarily, you know, diminish that, but resources are scarce and that's the reality. And ultimately it, it, it hurts not just the migrants, but like you said, it hurts the whole community because no one is getting what they need. Uh, and the resources are dwindling and it, it's becoming harder and harder to be able to sustain that. So we have a, a problem in terms of the humanitarian on, on every side. Mm -hmm. We have a problem in terms of the economics. We have a problem in terms of policies. So when you say complicated, these are just some of the things that you are <laughs> referring to. Touch, yeah. Right. In, in the complicated issue. So when you're addressing this, whether it be members uh, on the Hill, Capitol Hill, or, or with people uh, across the country, what does Libre put forth as, all right, here, here's our top three policies. We think these three things have implemented, or one thing have implemented, would make things better and maybe define better. Yeah, okay, define better. I'll do that at some point. I think in terms of what can make things better, I think it's keep it simple. We need to stop going after these pie in the sky bills. So there are things that we support, um, like addressing certain geographic barriers. So there's uh, Carrizo Cane which is an extremely big challenge at the border for border patrol agents to deal with. It's this giant plant. It gets in the way. It makes it harder for people to do their jobs. Easy. Deal with that. The other thing is- It's a, wait, it's, it's, it's a plant? It's a plant. Carrizo cane. It's giant and it gets in the way and it keeps people from doing their job. So this, you're talking about basically bulldozing it over, ripping it out of by the roof. Yep. Yep. And it's, it's why, can't, why can't we do this? Because there isn't a standalone bill. This is something that a lot of uh, people on the right and left agree with. This is huge. It's a problem. But what we're doing it doing is packaging that tiny little fix into massive hundreds and hundreds of pages of legislation. And you can imagine if you have, you know, even 200 pages of legislation and one of those pages is about this, this plant, there are going to be other things in there that no one's going to like or only one party's going to like. So I think oh, keep it simple. So standalone bills, and we start with just moving this plant out of the way, and that is going to help Border Patrol e more easily access people who are crossing. Yes. So I think it's it's that's okay. not, you know, the end-all be-all, but that is one example. There are so many things. Improving technology at ports of entry, improving technology along the border in general. There is a bill uh, Is there an there. example of the type of technology? So cameras, for example. There's so many outdated pieces of tech that we don't even have parts for anymore to be able to replace an update. Um, Border Patrol is now using drones, ensuring that they have all the capabilities that they need to be able to monitor. And, and by the way, it's not just Border Patrol, the cartels are making use of drones. Um, so we need to be able to not just like keep up with the cartel, but 
you know, be four, five, six steps ahead of them. So that's that's one of the main things is making sure that we have an actual border that can anticipate and not just react. Talking to Isabel uh, Soto, she is the policy director for the Libre uh, Initiative. So we, we you just brought up two standalone pieces of legislation. Are you telling me there's not a member of Congress that will uh, author that and submit that and and put that bill forward? We've got one uh, Intel bill at the border, which is all about updating some of this legis- uh, some of this technology, and it's uh, also focused. There are a handful of things coming out right now um, that are some of these smart fixes. We've got something else about uh, updating like border patrol, making sure that there's better screening. I mean, if, if we really want to go down a rabbit hole, we can talk about the whole fentanyl issue. I mean, that that has been what is hurting. Fentanyl doesn't people. seem like a rabbit hole to people. Fentanyl no, scares is, the living crap out of people. It is it is the issue that I think is one of the most important things Americans should be rallying around, but it keeps, you know, it's having its moments and then it goes away. But the actual problem doesn't go away. It's just the news cycle keeps forgetting about it. So what is the standalone bill, standalone concept that would help with the fentanyl coming in, in into the U.S.? Yeah. So essentially, there's there's a bill that, that's out there. I believe it's uh, Representative Slotkin that has uh, introduced it that would create just it's it's very it's a small fix, but it's something in the right direction. It creates a new position that increases capacity to be able to check what's coming in and out from ports of entry, because that's where all the fentanyl, the majority of the fentanyl is coming in. It's actually through legal ports of entry. It's entering, you know, hidden in trucks, hidden in, you know, radios, hidden in in God knows what, but that's how it's getting in. Um, And that's how the supply is getting into the U.S. Representative Slotkin being uh, from Michigan, correct? Yes. So a Democrat. So you have people on on the Democratic side of the aisle who are pushing forth some levels of legislation that could provide valuable. And you have people like uh, Representative Gonzalez or sorry, apologies, not Gonzalez, Representative Duarte, who uh, are interested in in being part of these, these pieces of legislation. The Intel Act, like I mentioned, I know he's involved in that as well. Um, but these are things that have just recently been, been introduced. So we'll see how much traction these things gain, uh, especially just given, you know, the next two years we're going to be dealing with a lot of a lot of issues um, fiscally, which I won't get into right now. Uh, but yeah, immigration is going to continue to be a large part of, I think, the, just the political atmosphere and, and take up a lot of time, as it should. And you've got an election coming up, which of course comes up all works. Of course. Do you do you find that there are people, uh, representatives, senators, however, members of of the political sphere, mm-hmm. who who have no interest in fixing the border because the issue is of more value than the fix? Unfortunately, I think yeah, that's that's true. It's it's easier to talk about a broken border then have a situation where you have a fixed one and the process works. You get much more political capital from pointing at your opponents and telling them that what they've done is, you know, this horrible thing to the country and they aren't acting on it. That's a huge bargaining chip. It's a huge thing, especially in an election. How, how, do you, does, does Libre address that with, with, with members of Congress? Does it, does it bring this up at all or, or is that kind of out of their, out of their sphere? Oh, we, we talk to whoever we need to talk to to get things done. So we will work with anyone who has a good idea. Uh, to, to that end, uh, you brought up in the beginning uh, that you're a, I think the term you used where you're a Hispanic organization. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it would lead one to wonder whether you your your advocacy is for something political or is your advocacy geared towards people who are Hispanic and saying that this this is not something that is uh, you, you you could be silent on. This is something you have to be proactive on to to the betterment of of the American society. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 what we think is, you know, we need the Hispanic voice to to be present in the political discussions. I mean, at this point, we're about 18 percent of the country and we're only projected to grow. Uh, for example, over the next, I think it's 10, 20 years, about uh, Hispanics are projected to be 70 percent of the workforce. We need to be empowered to be able to engage in our political system. So Libre is is not just talking to Hispanics. But we are a Hispanic led organization. We're coming out of places like McAllen. Um, we're coming from all over the country. And so we are trying to put together a voice for individuals that that kind of are in the same space as us and are, are fed up with things not moving. So let me get political for, for a moment, because mm -hmm. why not? Um, yeah. You, if, if you were to poll a, a, any subset of, of Americans, they would tell you that people trying to get into the country from Central America, from South America, are people that the Democratic Party wants to bring in to, th to make them voters. Mm -hmm. Is is it your uh, through your analysis, through your study, through your talking to people, having visited the border, work with Libre? Uh, is it your feeling that that's what you would get people coming who want to come to America who immediately would vote uh, with the Democratic Party? Yeah, I, I've heard this one a lot. Um, and I think it's a really common misconception. It's really simplifying the issue, in part because if we're seeing shifts in the Hispanic electorate, the shift that's happening is not moving further and further left. People are shifting right. And part of it is because of the poor decisions that are being made. And in part of the, if we're talking political, the Democratic Party is taking Hispanic voters for granted. And the Republican Party is offering a way forward to make fixes to things that Hispanics care about. And frankly, immigration is not in the top three. The things in the top three are uh, inflation, general economic welfare, uh, healthcare, and education. And these are things that Republicans are pushing on, things like uh, educational freedom, more options, school choice. If you look at who cares the most about that particular issue, break it down by race, ethnicity, it's Hispanics, about 77%. So there are all these other things we need to take into account. Um, when we talk about people, you know, coming into the country, I don't think it's, it's not a smart political play if it is one at all, um, is to let people in that in, from a demographic that is actually shifting right. You can find the complete interview with Isabel Soto from the Libre Initiative over at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz Today. So I got asked uh, if, if, if I have any opinion. Do I care that Alex Jones is back on Twitter X? And the answer is no. No, I, I, I don't. Tony Katz. Tony Katz, today, it's, it's good to be with you. Remember, I'm a believer in more speech and not less. So the fact that I'm not an Alex Jones guy is insignificant to whether or not uh, he should be able to, regardless of any issues, be able to have a, a voice. He didn't lose his First Amendment rights. And if you say to me, well, it's a private company, they can do what they want. Yes. But I, I think it's fascinating there. People are still like, oh, shouldn't be allowed to say a word. But then, when it comes to university presidents, how dare you try and silence them? I'm not silencing anybody. 
but you want Twitter to do something, but not the university. So you got to explain how you make that work. This is Tony Katz today. So what is this lawsuit that the Secretary of State lost? What is it that the Republican Party in Indiana is up against? What's the real issue? And the answer is, we have rights, right? Well, they come before political party, don't they? I think they do. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What's going on? Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Yeah, this cold has been a mother. Oh, my gosh. And it's, uh, it's, it's, we're now in the, in the coughing stage. And it just, it won't give up. It, it will not quit. And it hurts like what, I believe the term is heck. With That's how they say it on the radios. If you ask me privately, I will tell you it hurts like something else. The story here is about a guy by the name of John Rust. John Rust is an egg farmer. His family is Rose Acre Farms. We're talking about like maybe the second biggest in the country. They, they produce eggs. Well, the chickens produce eggs. They just, you know, have everything else. And so he wanted to run for Senate. The Republicans are running a Congressman Jim Banks from the Indiana 3rd District. He wanted to run against Jim Banks for the primary. Well, there are rules in place in the state of Indiana about that. And one of them uh, says that a candidate's past two primary elections must be cast with the party the candidate is affiliated with or a county party chair has to approve the candidacy. So what John Rust is saying is that, well, I didn't fulfill those requirements, but those requirements are unconstitutional. They're, they're vague. They're overly broad. This is silly. John Rust voted in the Republican primary in 2016. He voted in the Democratic primary in 2012. He did not vote in 2020 because of the pandemic, and this is how it's reported by the AP, the, quote, lack of competitive Republican races in Jackson County. Russ said his Democratic votes were for people he personally knew. So in order to run, you have to have voted in the last two primaries for your party if you want to run for that party. That's what the, the, the law currently states. And he says, well, that's, that's silly because there is a, there is a caveat. If you can get the the uh, party chair of that county to sign off, well, then you can run. You get you get certified. So he went to Amanda Lowry, the Jackson County Republican Party chair, and she said no. Because of your primary voting record, I'm not going to certify you. That's the end of that. So John Rust sues and states that the law keeps these legitimate candidates who have recently moved to Indiana or have switched political identifications from running for office. Marion County Superior Court Judge Patrick Dietrich states that the law, quote, unduly burdens Hoosier's long-recognized right to freely associate with the political party of one's choosing and to cast one's vote effectively. So John Rust challenges, John Rust wins... The Secretary of State, Diego Morales, who I am no fan of, uh, he has now appealed the ruling. Now, even if he were to win uh, the the case, 
he'd be up against Jim Banks, and that doesn't mean he'd necessarily get the nomination. Banks is wildly popular throughout the state. Uh, Banks has got uh, the money. He's been running at this now for for months. He was able to clear the field of people like Mitch Daniels and 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 others. So there's still a, a lot of work for him to do. He also has a quota, a, a signature quota that he has to uh, overcome. But let's leave all that to the side just for the moment. It's the idea of can somebody who wants to run for office run for office? And I think the answer should be yes. Now, I assume that what the party apparatchik would state is that we want to ensure that people aren't running for the wrong reasons or people aren't running just to do damage to the system. We want them to be Republicans running for the Republican ticket. And if they want to run as a Republican, well, these are are the basic rules. It does find find a place of peculiarity to the idea that people can't change their mind. As a matter of fact, when people do change their mind, we celebrate the living daylights out of them. Now we're saying, okay, you changed your mind. Our our, our, uh, persuasiveness was effective. Now you have to wait two election cycles before you can run for office. One could argue that that actually creates a good safety net. But one could also argue that that takes away from a person's right to seek public office. I've talked about, for example, people moving to Indiana from California. And after me, I was not in favor of anybody moving from California to Indiana. I was the last one, and and we would have been much better off. What I stated, though, many times, is that people who move from anywhere from one state to another should not be allowed to vote in a local election for three years. Oh, I've absolutely said it. I mean it. You come into a new state, You've got all the craziness from the old state you were in. You haven't even bothered to learn the system. Next thing you know, you're voting for nonsense. No, you take some time and you learn the system. On a local level, on a state level, nope. I would never stop anybody from voting on a federal level. Couldn't do that. And of course, no one's buying into my idea, but you know that I'm right. The difference between these two things is that I'm saying you should learn where you are and how where you are works and why it works, why it was so attractive to you to move there in the first place before you start casting your vote in a way that could be, you know, and the antithesis of the reasons and the values that you went to that place to begin with. Know the place first. And I, 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 get, I get all the pushback in the world on this. I never asked, well, would I stop somebody from running for office? And the answer is, nah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think that I would have the ability or want it for that matter to take away your right to be a citizen. Well, you'll take away my voting right. No, I didn't force you to move, kitten. I think you should learn where you're at. And besides, what I want isn't even a law. But here we're saying that somebody doesn't have the right to run for office. They have to meet a threshold. They have to meet a standard. And I guess the question is, outside of age requirements as prescribed by the Constitution, where else is there a standard? 
how you voted previously? Well, how you voted previously could be a reason for me not to vote for you. But that wouldn't be a reason for you not to be able to run for office. So I, I must ask, what is it that is, is now being um, appealed here? What possibly is the Secretary of State appealing in this case that the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, for that matter, can decide whether or not a citizen can run for office based on their, their, their calculations? So now I have to uh, wonder whether or not the system is proper to begin with. And wouldn't that mean that I don't actually have privacy in my vote if, if you know which party? Now that you could tell me, no, there's a hundred ways to know which party you voted for and, and what people are registered for and all those kinds of things. And I, and I, and I guess that's accurate. But keeping people from voting seems odd. And that's what it looks like. It looks like there's an argument here to keep people from, not, not from voting, to keep people from running. To keep people from running for office seems odd to me. Seems like a, a, seems like a problem waiting to happen, I guess is the way to call it. And so I don't understand what Diego Morales is, is going to appeal here. I don't. I, I haven't read where he said. Uh, look, I think here's the, the 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 issue. If I if I have it right, the Secretary of State is, State is going to appeal the ruling. The Indiana Attorney General's office filed the notice of appeal on behalf of the Secretary of State. Right, he's doing his job. I honestly don't know where it is. I don't now. If you ask me about what I think of John Rust, I have met John Rust once in my life. It was a handshake. He was pleasant. Do I think he's an awkward dude? Yeah, I think he's an awkward dude. The end. That is the total end of what I know about the guy. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing anywhere else. I just can't figure out what is the what is being appealed here. A guy who wants to run for office should be able to run for office. I think it's weird that you're appealing the ruling. You have to know. The party apparatus has to know that their rules, their rules just just on on their face are super weird. Super weird and super wrong. And so when people are talking about this, they'll 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 sometimes just get into the uh, um, they they may want to delve into into more personalities. I wasn't interested in the personalities. If you want to run for office, you should be able to run for office. And I don't know if we want to be the people who make it more difficult to run for office. I'd be curious to know a little bit more about when these laws got put into place. And how were they never challenged then? And then realizing, I mean, just in the in the basic way we've had the conversation, what is the argument for trying to appeal them now? Because I haven't I haven't found it yet. I haven't found the argument 
that makes sense for appealing the decision. But as I said, it's the uh, it's the Secretary of State of Indiana, Diego Morales. Maybe uh, it's my fault for trying to look for something rational from that guy. Yeah, there's no way he's Secretary of State next year, right? Please tell me there's no way. Yeah, there's there's just there can be no way. This is Tony Katz today. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. So Hamas is cracking. They're surrendering. Some of them see the writing on the wall as the Israeli Defense Forces has hit over 250 targets, ground operations, aerial operations, naval operations across the Gaza Strip, and that just in 24 hours over the weekend. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. And now the photos of Hamas fighters cuffed and in their underwear. Because I guess when you're surrendering, you strip down to your underwear to prove that you have no weapons on you. Because how could you trust any of these terrorists at all? I think maybe one of the questions is, why are they surrendering? Well, some of it could have uh, things to do with uh, with Yaha Sinwar, who is uh, the Hamas leader. Remember, he's the Hamas leader in Gaza. He is not the leader of Hamas who gets all the money and lives in Qatar or Qatar, depending on how you on how you state it. The word on the street is that uh, the people hate Sinwar. As a matter of fact, it has been uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, saying, "Do not die for this man. Don't let this let this man lead you to ruin." And of course, trying to divide the people uh, in, 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 in that way. So if they've been able to create a boogeyman uh, of him, well, that's, that's positive in, in breaking the will uh, of Hamas. Certainly amongst the people of Gaza, you, you, they, you could take a look at polling from these people to the extent that, the, that you know, they, they are able to get true numbers. Of course they blame Hamas. They know that their life is terrible. But it's also true that there are plenty of people who cheer what Hamas does. Now, you could argue they're only doing that because they know that Hamas will attack them if they don't or they want to get extra kind of preferential treatment, maybe food, whatever the case may be. So they cheer this, they cheer that, and then hopefully a little a bit of scraps ends up on, on their table. It's possible. It's also possible that there are plenty of people in Gaza who absolutely want to destroy Israelis and kill Jews. I think that's unquestionable. It is equally, to my mind, unquestionable that there are plenty of people who want to live free. We have known that there have been people in Gaza who have wanted to do away with Hamas, who have tried to rise up against Hamas, and they have been bloodied, and they have been beaten, 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 because uh, they've been unsuccessful because Hamas is a terrorist organization that has control of the area because they're supported financially by Iran. If the rational mind had taken hold of any of these leftists, they would have understood that everything would be better if Hamas was gone, and then they could have applied the pressure to Israel aggressively to make life better. But no, instead, they went the anti-Israel route, the Jew haters like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Andre Carson and Jamal Bowman. Then they went crazy thinking about the idea that 
that if Hamas was gone, Israel would have to take over Gaza Strip for a short while. Because after all, who's going to run this place? The Gazans uh, cannot run it on their own. The quote-unquote Palestinians, they can't run it on their own. They have no idea how to do it. None. Zero idea how to do it. And Israel's like, well, we would do it for for a short while. And then the United States is like, well, that's unacceptable. What are you going to have, a UN team? How terrible do you want it to be for the people of Gaza? You want it to be UN team terrible. That's, that's messed up. That is messed up. But the surrendering. I must tell you that I'm a little bothered by the surrendering because I think it puts a uh, bit of onus on, on the Israelis um, in, in that one that would not exist if these people had just been destroyed. And you say to me, Tony, that's pretty bloodthirsty. No, I'm just discussing a reality here. You create an opportunity. Now these people are going to be prisoners. Now these prisoners have to be uh, provided for. And now you're giving others an opportunity to kidnap more Israelis. And now you've got some hostage thing. You're going to work from from that. And a negotiation, let these people go. And they're going to go back and do this again. I just, I'm, I'm just saying that there are issues within this. But maybe I just got to be thankful that they're cracking. Maybe I got to be thankful that that uh, the people of Gaza see what, what cowards these terrorist lowlife bastards are. I would love it if the college campuses of Harvard and University of Pennsylvania and MIT, along with those right here in Indiana, you know, learned from this. Look at these terrible terrorist cowards. Never support them. I only hope that lesson is learned by those who need to learn it. And I know there are plenty of people who never supported them to begin with, and they deserve our respect. Find everything at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.